0: Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today, you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey.
1: So it's not about, I haven't done anything for my body, so this month I'm going to go and run a marathon. It's about incremental improvements. We don't need to see heroic change, but just do something. There's a wonderful line that we talk in the book, and I won't go through the poem, but it's always a little further. Where you have a choice, perhaps go always a little further. You've got the option between an escalator and the stairs. Take the stairs. It's those little things that do subtly, but in the aggregate boldly, move our resilience.
0: We've traveled around the world by Zoom for today's guests. Australian SAS officers Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, co-authors along with Dr. Dan Pronk of their new book, The Resilience Shield. Following years of Special Operations Forces combat with the Australian Army, Dan, Ben, and Tim saw firsthand the impact of trauma and post-traumatic stress. They dedicated themselves to years of research, study, and interviews of others to develop their model of layers of resilience and wove the stories of their own journey and those they interviewed into their incredible and insightful book. You can learn more about their work, and you can take their survey to assess your own resilience at ResilienceShield.com. Now, let's go hear from Ben and Tim.
2: Awesome. Well, good evening here in Kansas City and good morning in Australia. This is our uh, first night show, but uh, morning in Australia for us. So it's a uh, a new day for us here and uh, lessons in leadership to work uh, multiple days and multiple time zones. But I'm excited to have Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis With us, they are the co-authors along with Dan of Resilience Shield, which I got to tell you guys, I I read a lot. I think there's a lot of folks on here that know I read a lot, and this is one of the most fascinating and informative books on grit and perseverance and resilience that I've ever read. And as soon as I saw it, I started reaching out to you guys because it was I was just mesmerized by not just the stories that you brought but the research and the science behind it, how all of these things weave together to help us be a more resilient gritty type person and so i'm excited about diving in and hearing a bit about the book and i know we'll have lots of questions from the folks that join in but why don't we go back uh, earlier and you talk about some of your your journey and your inspirations that that led you guys to uh Join the military in Australia, and then take that commitment up a notch and go into special forces. And uh, what you know brought you to leaving the military and and becoming authors and uh, and teachers and coaches of resilience.
1: Yeah, thanks, Randy. Uh, yeah, so Tim Curtis is my name. Uh, my father was in the military, so he served 35 years, including uh, combat operations in Borneo and Vietnam, but probably more interestingly and poignantly, he was the commanding officer of our Tier one Special Operations Unit, the Special Air Service Regiment, or SAS. And so a lot of that influence was in my life um, as I was growing up, running around barefoot, the SAS barracks. Um, and I was a pretty average school student, but I managed to muddle my way through to a scholarship to our Australian Defence Force Academy, ADFA, which is a military university. Absolutely hated going to military university. Loved the military bit, hated the university bit, but again, managed to sort of get my way through with 16 straight passes, nothing above <laughs> 60%, and headed literally over the hill in our capital city, Canberra, to the Royal Military College, where we do an additional 12 months of military work. Graduated to the Infantry Corps and went up to a place in far North Queensland called Townsville and joined a Light Infantry Battalion. And after three years in the Light Infantry Battalion, I think it had wet my appetite to go and do SAS selection, which I did in 1996, and then spent about the next decade of, of my life in and out of the unit. Before, um, in 2005, after my time as a squadron commander in the unit, deciding I'm going to take a different journey um, through business school and across into Afghanistan, where I was a consultant for the UN parliamentary elections, and then spent about the next eight years working out of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, running a group of 42 companies. And I came home about uh, five, six years ago, linked up with Ben, and we started not just our parent company, Metal Global, which is a management consulting company teaching leadership, teamwork, resilience, and crisis management, but also a mad podcast called The Unforgiving 60 Podcast, a line that we stole from a Rudyard Kipling poem called If. And, yeah, we've experienced a wonderful journey in both of those areas, including taking us into writing the book and perhaps more on the book later. I always like so it's Ben Pronk here. I always like letting
3: Tim start with that because our backstories are almost identical on paper. Uh, so mm-hmm. I get to to sort of skim off his coattails there. I was also a child of an army officer. Uh, my dad was a helicopter pilot. He flew reconnaissance helicopters, and I think like Tim, I'd always seen just uh, how much he loved his career and the sort of opportunities and the excitement, the sort of boys' own adventure thing of the military life. And so uh, our father, so Dan, obviously, my brother, the the co-author of the book as well, um, never pushed us into the military, but just through his own love of what he did his whole life, we, we got very attracted to it. Like Tim, went through the Defence Force Academy. Unlike Tim, I took my studies very seriously. I did quite well. Um, But very much like Tim, I then went across to RMC and went to exactly the same Infantry Battalion about four or five years after Tim had been there. um, And then did SAS selection and and went across in 2000 to the unit. Um, Unlike Tim, I couldn't get a proper job, so I stayed in the Army for a a bit longer. I I worked in the SAS Regiment uh, for 18 years. Um, had the absolute honour of commanding Australian soldiers on operations uh, from patrol, five-man five patrol, um so on, all the way up to the, the SAS Regiment, which was my last job as commanding officer there. And during that time, uh, again, had the privilege of deploying to places like Afghanistan, like Timor-Leste, to our north, and the absolute privilege of spending a year on exchange in the United States and deploying with one of your special operations uh, units to Iraq for five months, which was a a real honor and and, an absolutely impactful and and powerful professional and personal experience that whole year. Um, I got out of the military and did a full-time MBA and was really at a crossroads uh, at that point and serendipitously um, met up with Tim. We'd stayed in contact Uh, Tim had been one of my earliest bosses, and and don't tell him, but one of my best bosses uh, within the SAS regiment. We met back up uh, in 2017 while I was studying, and I think I was headed towards out of the military and into another big sort of faceless bureaucratic institution, and and Tim said, well, why don't we start this thing ourselves? Why don't we have a go at this consulting um, side of things and and sort of being a a bit more in control of our own destinies and for that i'll be eternally thankful to him we've started this business and it's given us incredible opportunities and you know it's funny those sort of sliding door moments but but clearly i don't think we'd be having this wonderful conversation with you if uh we hadn't have gone down that path and so i'm very thankful to him for that
2: you know you've got so many incredible experiences and and there are a couple that really resonated with me from the book but when did it start to run through your mind that we've got some really great experiences that can weave into a story that we could go tell?
3: Um, we, It was clearly our military experience that got us interested in this idea of resilience and in particular uh, the experiences of some people close to us, including my brother Dan, who did have uh, his own issues with post-traumatic stress. He'd been a combat doctor in both our commando regiment and our special air service regiment, and it had a number of pretty traumatic experiences. One particular rotation to Afghanistan where he um, tended to three of his, his mates who had been injured in combat, um, worked on all three of them, was able to, sa- to save none of them, and sort of carried these... Uh, I guess, experiences and demons through into his post-discharge life. And that sort of thing really got us interested in, we knew we were physically fit. We had to be mentally robust to get into the unit, to pass our selection course. We kind of thought we were resilient, but all of a sudden we were seeing people, that exact same mould of person, having very different reactions to these same kind of stressors. And that was the catalyst for us to get interested Um, For us, it was critically important in both our leadership and our um, resilience work uh, that we didn't just try to say, we're in the army, we went to Afghanistan or whatever, and and therefore, this is how you should lead or this is how you should be resilient. Um, We wanted uh, to use, I guess, those military experiences as maybe a vehicle to convey some more universal principles on things like leadership and in particular in the book on resilience. And so... It was critical to us that the lessons were transferable, that they were um, applicable uh, to, to people in all walks of life, and also that they were scientifically backed, that it wasn't just us saying, oh, this is what I figure because I went to Afghanistan. It was much deeper than that. And so that that was the, I guess, the catalyst was our military experience, but it was really important for us that it was transferable and scientifically backed.
2: your illustrations, of resilience as layers really clicked with me because it was so easy to see your analogy of the afghan rug or the shield and how all that comes but but i just loved that visual of the rug that underneath gave you a much clearer picture of the of the strength uh, talk a little bit about that about how these layers come together to help us become a more resilient person.
1: Yeah, so the resilient shield, not surprisingly, has the iconography of a shield. (laughs) Um, And we thought the shield was a fantastic symbol. Not only does it defend you, but it can defend those that you're with. It allows one hand to be free to do other things. And in the Spartan context, those ancient warriors, um, it was incredibly important in the phalanx. um, And also that shield was passed from the maternal side of the family to a Spartan warrior. And one of the wonderful lines that's quite familiar from popular movies, as a Spartan warrior departed (coughs) about to fight the battle, um, a mother would say to her son, return with your shield or on it. There was more disgrace in dropping your shield than dying and being carried home on it. And we thought, wow, that's super powerful. And so that entered the, um, I guess, the, our lexicon as part of the resilient shield. And then we thought about, okay, what are the different constituent parts? Ben talked about the evidence-based nature of our model, but we recognised a bit like the Spartan mother passing that shield to the sun. There's an innate layer. We all have some level of resilience. You bring it right now on this podcast. Then there's the mind layer which is all about, yep, grit and determination and and wanting to go and do something and learning from our mistakes. But there's also the meditation and mindfulness, our ability to flush the nonsense out of our head. Not surprisingly, a body layer, comprising sleep, diet, and exercise. A social layer, the importance of social support networks. Psychologists will tell us they will diminish our vulnerability. A professional layer, if we suck at our job, we're likely to be more stressed. And we add a bonus layer at the end called adaptation. And the adaptation layer recognises that if you've got real strong stability in the other layers, adaptation is your ability to do things using that as a platform that you never previously thought was possible. And uh, I tell a little little lie about the layers because it's not really layers like you'd see in a chocolate cake where you could just do without that layer. The layers are interwoven. You can't just say, I'm not going to work on my body layer because the rest of my layers are okay. And we were trying to search for a way to describe that and we sort of came back to our experience in buying carpets on a place called Chicken Street in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. And when you buy a carpet on Chicken Street, we naturally want to look at the geometry and the colors on the surface of the carpet and imagine how it's going to look in our lounge room floor but an afghan carpet seller will constantly turn the carpet upside down because the value of an afghan carpet is derived from its underside the knots per square inch the tightness of the weave and so we came back to the model and thought yeah if you focus with a microscope in on that resilient shield You won't see layers, you'll see interwoven strands. And if you decide I'm not gonna do anything for my body layer, that diminishes the strength of your whole shield. It diminishes your whole resilience. And so our idea with the shield is that if all of these things equally contribute to resilience, which generally speaking, the research says it does, then you need to be doing something in all of those layers, which isn't to say that you can't have a bias to one layer, for example, I'm young professional, I want to spend a lot of time at work because I'm highly motivated to be partner, that's okay. You'll be trading out other areas of your resilience and that's okay, maybe you're not doing time with friends, maybe you're not practicing mindfulness and meditation techniques, and perhaps you're compromising sleep, diet and exercise. But if you continue that trajectory for 30 years, nearly guarantee you'll be overweight, depressed, You won't have a relationship with your partner nor your kids. And if I catch up with you for coffee, there's one thing I can nearly guarantee that you'll talk about, work. You'll be the most boring person on the high street. And so, yeah, we love the idea of just everything in balance in that resilient shield. I want
2: to read one of your passages, which was comical, but so accurate for where at least we are here in the States. Some poor, phoneless fool is probably sitting next to a waterfall somewhere, totally unaware of how angry and scared he's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that one cracked me up because this thing has really dominated our life the last few years, and the inputs are not all positive. In fact, a lot of social media is very negative and very detrimental to mindset and and resilience and grit I'm, I'm assuming you have some of the same issues there how do you encourage people to manage that and keep that in balance because we're in an age where we want information and we've got a a lot in our hand but we also got to get away from it
3: yeah i think so we um think a lot about the the sort of impacts, both positive and negative of that ubiquity of information and also the the presence of social media. Neither of those things are going away and neither of those things are fundamentally bad or evil, but they do present us with challenges in terms of how we moderate our our intake. First of all, um, from our perspective, Uh, There is a fine balance between understanding things around you, um, but uh, also being able to filter out things that that may not be positive for your life. Uh, We love the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. And in fact, most of the ancient schools of wisdom uh, say similar things. And that is, you really need to be able to differentiate between the things you can control and the things you can't control. And you want to dedicate your efforts towards those things you can, and try not to expend emotional energy on those things you can't. I certainly find that the infl- like the flood of, of information that we've got available to us can make that difficult. And a really recent case in point is the situation in Afghanistan, um, tragic on so many levels and for people who have served over there, um, a lot of them are finding it very impactful. But ultimately there's a whole bunch about that situation that we at an individual level can't control now that doesn't mean we're not empathetic towards people involved. that doesn't mean there aren't things we can do to to sort of help um, one another and, and potentially even people over there. but fundamentally if, if we're ringing ourselves in knots about sort of strategic decisions that have been made or about situations over which we've got no control then really that is going to be counterproductive. There's a wonderful Buddhist saying that, that says don't let the arrow hit you twice, which links into these ideas of uh, being able to, to control how you react to emotions. So the first arrow is that information or that event. Um, often you can't really control that. But the second arrow is your reaction. And you can definitely control how you react to those things. And so those sorts of philosophies have been really positive for myself personally and for a lot of the people that we work with in terms of just helping to triage and filter the reaction that you have to, to various pieces of information. It's wonderful to, to have a knowledge of what's going on in the world, but when you can start taking positive control over what you dedicate your emotional energy towards, then you're in a much better position to use that proactively and positively.
1: Mm. Appreciate the waterfall, don't worry about the phone. Our, our lesson inside the book is in those opportunities that we get, to be present with something or someone, be present with them. And there's a wonderful researcher out of MIT called Sherry uh, Turkle, who talks about the attention economy and how all of these social media platforms, by the way, not very social, are competing for this attention economy. And if you're using a social media platform and you don't know the commodity, you don't know what they're selling, then you're the commodity. I think the other interesting thing from our research is that every day we consume 34 gigabytes of information. It's the equivalent of around about a 100,000 word book. Our brains are several hundred thousand years old and we haven't had a software upgrade. And so we're getting more information in, including from these incredibly powerful computers that we add a label and call them telephones. But we don't have any outputs. We don't have any improved way of releasing the valve to allow the stuff that's not important out. And so, yeah, there's some really interesting uh, research also on the importance of mindfulness meditation to just be able to create a release valve to allow the things that aren't really important to go. And when we are with someone or something that's incredibly important, just to be present and in the moment with them.
2: Let's go to Steve, who I believe has a question.
4: Randy, thank you. Um, Another great lessons in leadership. And gentlemen, thank you so much. um, I'm looking forward to reading your book, and and uh, better understanding the methods that you've already articulated for an individual to develop resiliency. But my question has to do with leadership and its influence on culture um, in the military when there's life and death consequences to adaptations. It's easier, I think, to get people to uh, think in terms of adapting quickly to changing circumstances. We don't have that much in the world of business. COVID was a, a great experience for that tells us that we can't fully adapt or expect uh, disruption that affects not just our business, our state, our country, but the whole world. Um, But it's still not the same as life and death, unless maybe you're an owner of a restaurant. Mm -hmm. But if you're an owner of a manufacturing plant and you have uh, union folks and office folks and from different walks of life, uh, my my question goes to your uh, methodology, in uh, as a leader, to influence the entire diverse population that you have, to develop resiliency as a cultural element.
3: We um, talk to this a little bit in what we call a professional layer. And two of the key components of the professional layer, particularly from a leadership perspective, are uh, linked to these ideas of virtuosity, and I would suggest empathy as well. So virtuosity, um, the idea of having an environment where people can uh, sort of work to their their best um, uh, sort of capabilities, uh, a lot of that can be fostered from a leader's perspective by providing a clear sense of purpose. And what we see in a lot of organizations is um, often a very high level organizational purpose, um, and an inability to cascade that or translate that down to what people are doing on a day-to-day basis. And we tend, I think, often to sort of uh, use kind of euphemisms or uh, sort of platitudes in these high-level purposes that can make it really difficult to translate down to what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, my view is that from a professional perspective, resilience has increased incredibly when people understand the part they're playing in the bigger picture. Not only does this allow them to see purpose and meaning in what they're doing and being able to link the rhetoric with the action, but it also gives them the ability to self-start. If we as leaders are able to influence by describing that vision in a way that makes sense for people at all levels in our organization, then that can allow them to be intrinsically motivated and be proactive in working towards that vision rather than feeling like they're on the hamster wheel and just getting passed down the the um, the, the direction or the, the micromanagement. The second part that I mentioned is this idea of empathy. I think we're getting a lot better at this um, societally and from a business perspective. As we came out of the Second World War, a lot of the leadership rhetoric was actually about management it was about efficiency and it was about kaizen processes and pumping out more widgets because you know globally that's what we had to do in an industrialized war that was the acme of effective business practice we are shifting thankfully from that towards uh, a lot more of how i would define leadership and that includes this concept of emotional intelligence that uh, is getting a lot more traction in the leadership literature Two key elements of emotional intelligence are self-knowledge and self-regulation, so able to see our own flaws, our own strengths, our own weaknesses, and leverage off that authentic self for leadership outcomes. And then the second component is this idea of empathy, being able to put ourselves in that other person's shoes. And with that, it becomes very hard to have these, uh, I guess, traditional social identity in groups. You know, you mentioned things like unions, If we're able to more interact with them and to try to understand their purpose and their agenda, um, the battle lines get a bit softer and we soon find that there is more common ground with us as humans. And all of this is really impactful at an individual level from a resilience perspective, um, but paradoxically also uh, promotes uh, organisational effectiveness.
1: There's also a belief to your point on contrasting leadership in the military to leadership in Fortune 500 or a small to medium business. There's often a perception that military leadership's really easy. You just tell the people what to do and they're gonna do it, they'll just obey. Um, one of the interesting things we found in our career is that's absolutely not the case. And if you can imagine the most insubordinate organisation to lead, It's the SAS regiment, but it's not insubordinate in the context of just everyone dissenting. It's a learned insubordination that we encouraged because we recognised in that small group dynamic where the fundamental force size is four to six people, a participative style, being incredibly inclusive in planning processes, elicited the best possible result. The most junior of person might have had the best idea And if we can fuse that into a plan that now we all collectively own, then we're going to get a better result. Now, that didn't really remove the autocratic or um, directive nature of leadership. At times, that's absolutely needed. And we love in our leadership work talking about our uh, triangle model of leadership. And if you've got a pen there, you could draw a triangle at the top right leader, the bottom right hand angle, right followers and the bottom left-hand angle, right, the environment. And the secret to leadership, we believe, is just understanding the dynamic interplay of those three angles. So in that environment where it's chaotic, to your point, Steve, the COVID situation, or it's complex, where there are many different competing factors, where there's volatility, uncertainty, ambiguity, if you've got a weaker group of followers, you need to lead in a different style. You need to pick your leadership style perhaps to be a little more autocratic, where there's time criticality pulling on that environmental angle. You need to be more direct in, in your the way that you engage your followers. Conversely, if there's no real challenges in that environment, think it's a business as usual day in our company, but we've seen that problem a million times, given our experience as a leader, we've got two options. We could say to our subordinates do it this way i've seen this a million times this works or we have a more participative opportunity to say here's the guidance i want you to go away and come up with some courses of action some options for me think deeply about them and brief me back and then we'll proceed to the next stage now that's not removing our authority as a leader nor our control but what it is doing, a bit like our learned insubordinate patrol in the SAS, is it's engaging that group of followers to be able to think about things in a different way, perhaps break our hindsight bias, our prejudices on things that we've only ever done, and possibly get a really good result. And the one thing that binds that angle between the leader or leaders because it's also a collective model. And the followers is the dividend of trust and we love talking about trust we do it ad nauseam it's not built in five minutes five days five weeks but if you're waiting five years to build the dividend of trust between you and your followers there's a problem with your style and we would say that that angle gets real strength once there is trust and the great irony is that during really challenging times coming back to that environmental angle Like COVID-19, trust can build quicker. We should, as a leader, seize the opportunity to build trust through the most challenging of circumstances. And when do the leader and the followers become a team? When they've got that component of trust and they move down that angle and interact with the environment. And that's where we really see the merit of the team and how well prepared they are.
4: Thank you, gentlemen. Empathy, trust, uh, and um, what was that last thing that? Oh, mindset that uh, Cody talked about last week, purpose. Those are the three words that I heard most often in that response. Thank you. I look forward to reading your book.
2: Thank you. Let's go to Drew. You
5: guys are saying so many cool things. I could listen for hours. I'm sure we could have some great conversations. I'm really curious, you know, as we, um, you know, in the business world, as I've transitioned out of 26 years in the military, um, one of my favorite things that I've heard is about this whole idea of hiring for, for values and culture. Um, and because the skills will come behind that and years of being a junior leader having senior leaders that I would scratch my head at because I didn't how, know how in the world they understood the human dimension associated with how do you know this person was agile, adaptive, resilient, uh, had the intellectual maturity uh, to do the right things. Uh, you know, you guys hit hit on this whole idea that, you know, you've seen one movie, you've seen uh, Full Metal Jacket, and you've got this military perceived obedience And I have never been around a group uh, of team of team people that were obedient. The word why comes up so much because in the military, you can't just be blind to obedience. There's a point in time for that. So My question in the business world, as you sort of put all that uh, together, have you thought through the methodology of finding people who have the emotional intelligence, this resiliency gene? Because so many times as a senior leader, I've had junior leaders say to me, sir, how did you know that was he was going to react that way? Or how did you know that was about he was going to be a good leader or a good commander? Um, and the question is, I don't know how I did it. Have you come up with any methodology to determine science? It's not a scientific thing. Mm. How do you know um, that you're developing this resiliency within your organization to be that agile, adaptive team? I was curious if you've thought through that.
3: Yeah, I I think it's a fascinating question. And there's some really outstanding research from a guy called Daniel Kahneman. Most people have have heard of Thinking Fast and Slow, so a Nobel Prize-winning psychologist that talks to that same sort of point. So he actually did a research project on recruiting for the Israeli army. And he was very interested in Could an AI-based, a computer-based analysis machine do a better job of picking successful recruits than that crusty old sergeant or warrant officer who'd seen it all before and was was working straight off intuition? And so he set up a control test where they had a a sort of survey-based, a computer, and analytical-based recruitment screen. And they had a human carbon-based recruitment screen. And they actually ended up finding that it was a combination of the two. So that idea drew your point of just that spidey sense that you get from that 10,000 hours you've had of dealing with people. And you probably don't even consciously think about it, but you're picking up all of these weak signals and these sort of inputs that that, um, a human interaction gives you. That is an incredibly powerful um, methodology of of sort of selecting for this and and of having that gut feel that a person's going to be a good fit in an organization, but it can be complemented and it can be exponentially sharpened through the use of smart analytics. And so what Kahneman found was that a combination of a clever recruiting screen, so thinking about the characteristics And sort of quantifying those in many ways, to your point, Drew, sort of a scientific approach, um, not as a standalone, but as a complement, as a cue for the human approach. And what that found was it helped uh, amplify some of the weak signals and cue the human uh, selectors onto some of the characteristics that they may want to explore a little further. And so, you know, classic consultants answer a, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Um, but there is definitely uh, a benefit to to both. The thing that I really wanna flag with that is that we shouldn't be, just because we can't uh, quantify or sort of write down that experiential-based intuition thing, we shouldn't be discounting it. It is actually something really important. And uh, Gary Klein in Sources of Power talks about this idea of the experience-based, intuition-based sort of decision-making in a very similar way. And I think we want to be more attuned to that, particularly as experienced leaders. Use your gut not as the final decision maker, but as that real um, sort of cue for for further analysis. If your spidey sense is saying there's something up with this guy or girl that I'm I'm interviewing, then use that to cue into a deeper analysis. If conversely, you're thinking, I've got a really good feeling about this person, then maybe complement that with some of the the scientific or statistical sort of screening. But to your point, Drew, I'd always go with the the gut feel over the the sort of paper-based feel on a a hire. And that's kind of what we've done in our business
1: and and had some pretty good success. Love the words, Drew. Resilience, Gene. Uh, A really good friend of ours, actually ex-US Navy SEAL, Pete Naschak, came out here on exchange, served with Ben and I in the SAS squadron. And he's just written his thesis on a thing that he calls the resilient shepherd he says inside all organizations you'll know the people that create harmony even under incredible pressure they probably won't think of themselves as a resilient shepherd but they are able to assist in navigating a team through incredibly demanding circumstances And part of his thesis is about identifying and nurturing that to make sure that we have resilient shepherds in all of our organisations. And if you were to think about the organisation that you work in, or perhaps the sporting team that you play in, there will be a few people that when the energy is high, and we might just need to down tune the vibrations a bit, to be flatter, leveler and more consistent rather than this on a sine wave of craziness, there'll be resilient shepherds that bring that energy down. Changing the topic slightly back to leaders, we also say no resilience, no leader. Um, if you think of the most inspiring leaders in our history, it nearly guarantee that they exhibited incredible resilience. And probably against all of the layers that we call out in our resilient shield, So step one for leaders is to work out, how resilient am I? And alongside the book, we have the Resilient Survey. So it's subject to a federal government grant. We received money for the survey. We have a university partner um, diagnosing results of the survey. It's evidence-based. It's peer-reviewed. And we've now had thousands of people that go through that survey that allows you to assess your own resilience against our model to work out, well, what layer is a bit diminished? How do I make a contribution inside that layer to improve my own resilience or diminish my vulnerability? And we like to talk about our book as not being therapy. This is to coin Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic, about getting active in your own rescue. So now you've assessed your resilience, do something about it. And that's the domain of our Resilience Action Plan, which simply stated is you writing down what your scores are across those resilience domains, working out where the tide is out, where you really need to work hard to move the needle to to create that bold adjustment and holding yourself accountable to doing something about it. So it's not about, I haven't done anything for my body, so this month I'm going to go and run a marathon. It's about incremental improvements. We don't need to see heroic change, but just do something. There's a wonderful line that we talk in the book, and I won't go through the poem, but it's always a little further. Where you have a choice, perhaps go always a little further. You've got the option between an escalator and the stairs. Take the stairs. It's those little things that do subtly but, in the aggregate, boldly move our resilience.
2: That survey is fascinating, and I, I think I'm invincible, and I scored much worse than I expected. And so <laughs> I wanted to go back and do it over.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah, remember, it is it's, interesting.
1: It's, a, it's a bell curve, and uh, Ben has a wonderful line. If you ask who's a good driver, 90% of people will say, I'm an excellent driver. The same is true with resilience. If you say who's resilient, 90% of people would say, I'm incredibly resilient. But that bell curve includes elite athletes, it includes my 82-year-old father, my 15-year-old daughter. So what's not important is the scores on the bell curve, but your relative scores. So the scores of each of the layers relative to each other. And if you're very strong, regardless of the number in your professional layer, but not so good in uh, mind and body, work on mind and body. Put those two components in your resilience action plan to make a difference because we talked a bit about the biasing one layer. That's okay. But if you continue that trajectory with heavy professional bias, for example, for months into years, into many years, you absolutely can imagine how diminished you're going to be, how that durability will be taken away from you and how profound an effect it could have on both your mental and your physical resilience.
6: Let's go to Mike. Guys, I've so been looking forward to this. I know we were scheduled to talk before and then overcome by events, but guys, hey, you know, Mike Kenny here. Um, Everything you're saying, I listened. I, I was talking to Linda. I was at Rockhurst talking about our program. And teed up the same things, Daniel Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast mm. and slow, system one and system two thinking. Talked about you know the stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, the obstacle is the way, all of that. So everything you're saying, I mean, so much resonated with me. And of course, and I've got hung, and you know this, got hung on my uh, board here if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of run yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And what end, which is more important, you'll be a man, my son. So I figured I'm like, yeah, that's if I know it. So, you know, kudos. My question in your experience, how much of grit or resilience is innate? It is innate or nature. I say this because I'm not going to say everything, but so much. And Randy was good to give me your book. I can't wait to read it. So, so much of what you're advocating, you know, we, we do in my nonprofit, where it's And And uh, I was just asked by a, a, a young gal um, at the talk that I gave. And she's like, well, you know, how are your outcomes? Like, you know, you can teach the stuff, but do people follow through? And I've got plenty of anecdotes where people do. But you know, to me, you know, it's it's really comes down to they may know the way, but do they have the discipline? So when I say innate or trained, you can teach people how to be resilient. But in your opinion, how much of that is having the discipline and the intestinal fortitude to do what needs to be done, versus yeah, I know what to do, but I ain't doing it.
3: You know? mm-hmm. It's a fantastic question and this is why we have the innate layer as the the very first thing we discuss within the shield. It's the foundation upon which we build everything else. It is also very different between different people. So there is a lot of research on uh, some of the characteristics that correlate strongly with resilience. I'm choosing my words carefully, whether they're causal or not, certainly there is a correlative relationship between some personality characteristics, some values characteristics and even some physical genetic characteristics and resilience. So it is important to note that it is going to be different for everyone. There is definitely a nature um, element to resilience. But this is the massive caveat that I want to flag. What this means to us is purely that it is pointless comparing my resilience to Tim's, to yours, to, to any of your, your students. The nature thing tells us that impacts of stress and the way we deal with them are going to be different across the board. And so it is, it is actually really counterproductive to be trying to compare yourself to the next person and, and trying to say, well, I dealt with that stress all better than, than him or her, because it, it doesn't make sense. The, so given that, we all do start from, from different start points. I think that recognition is important. But regardless of that start point, I 100% believe that you can develop resilience and that even those characteristics that you mentioned about that sort of grit and determination can be improved. So even if you start from a relatively low base, where we talk about you know nature, Uh, deals you the cards and and nurture sort of plays them even if you've been dealt a pair of twos in in life from a resilience perspective then you can still play them to the the best perspective you can still improve that uh that that hand by the way you play them and so i i personally um and i I haven't got a science backing for this i think for people to say it's 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 not in my nature to get better i think that's a cop-out um, in all sorts of areas I think we can all get better now am I ever going to be an Olympic athlete the short answer is no I I, <laughs> I never will be um, and you know I think there's a genetic element in that but uh, from a fat kid in school uh, who, who had no sort of interest or, or sort of background in in physical fitness um, I was able to, to just one step in front of another and get myself to a position where I could do a job that did have a physical component to it so I think a lot of it is trained. And I think uh, a big part of that is that mindset to understand that we can get better and we can progress and that the comparison is with ourselves and not with the Olympic athlete or the Instagram influencer or the Hollywood actor. Um, it is just with ourselves and, and
1: just about progressing ourselves throughout life. Can we break the word grit down? I mean, grit equals passion plus perseverance. And if we were to focus on the word perseverance, Perhaps I could tell a little story. In the SAS regiment, our special operations selection course is around about three weeks, and there's 150 to 200 candidates that line up on day one, ben and I being one of those many, many years ago, but more interestingly, we instructed on many more. And when you look along the lineup, you see incredible human specimens, absolute elite athletes, guys and girls that are ripped and The irony is that by day three or four, all the fit people are gone and the end of the course delivers you a tough person. So what's the difference between fitness and toughness? It's not about the size of the bicep or the pec or the lungs. It's about what's between the ears. And it's fascinating when we think about the importance of the mind. Ben talked about it as being the first modifiable layer. But what really gets us out of bed to train in the morning or drives us to dealing with that rejection, to understand what lessons we can take away from that in order to implement it next time. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And I'd say that for both Ben and I, it's probably been the last frontier for us. Like we We're always, you know, um, reasonably fit. But discovering the inner recesses of our mind using mindfulness and meditation techniques has made us better fathers, better business people, and
6: I'd say also better humans. Guys, thanks so much. We we definitely need to collaborate. <laughs> well,
1: Love that for a collaboration. Yeah.
2: One of the things Drew and I've talked about dozens of times is the component of dealing with tough times and adversity that comes from faith or something to believe in, Mm -hmm. you know, what have you found in your studies around
3: that? It's massive. Um, I find a really interesting overlap um, between, so I love that word faith. um, And I think it transcends the theological. A lot of people do draw faith from religion, um, and that that's an absolutely wonderful thing that, that we see across the world in all sorts of different religious groups. Um, a lot of people do draw faith from philosophy. A lot of people do draw faith from social relationships. I do think that idea, and it's Tim's point about this concept of resilience is not just a shield for yourself, it's a shield for others. And so any of these things that give you that mindset that you're able to deal with adversity and that you can believe in something maybe a bit bigger than yourself also tend to have uh the, the bonus of uh looking after one another and recognizing to our point before about empathy that ultimately we are all in this uh together to, to coin a phrase from a, a famous Australian song. Um so I think faith is is absolutely the fundamental component of uh the mind layer in in Many of its manifestations and whether that's expressed through philosophy, through mantras, through mindset, um, through religion uh, is is ultimately uh, going to be up to the individual.
1: We had a fascinating experiment last year during COVID, using my dad, putting him in a Petri dish. He's a religious man, uh, always has practiced religion. And that was taken away from him during COVID. And in our diagnostic, we explored the idea of religious faith and the importance of congregation, and how that works into this thing called resilience. And when you think about it, there's a real sense of purpose. There's an incredible sense of community, i.e. a social layer. There is also a body component. We say prayers or hymns, it creates breath work, unconscious breath work. There's definitely some mind. We're only focusing on the song we're singing or the prayer we're reciting. And there's a grandeur, generally speaking, of where we happen to to do it. So in that context, religious faith and the importance of congregation, it actually bisects a range of those different resilience layers. It comes back to the strength of the weave. You can get incredible strength out of spiritual practices, um, whether they're religious or not, and be able to make contributions to a number of layers without really thinking too much about it. I believe Steve
2: has another question.
4: Oh, not a question, Randy, just back to Mike's question on nature versus nurture. Um, Mike, if you haven't uh, done research on change management, there's an author, I think his name is Daryl Connor, and he uses the phrase uh, absorption limits. I, I think uh, the mind is the most mysterious and and wonderful unknown thing inside of each body. And, and he simply makes the point that we're all born with uh, different levels of ability to adapt. He calls it absorption limits. So I guess that's the nurture thing. And from a leadership standpoint, I think, um, we can't always screen every employee uh, and make sure that they have resilience before they are employed. Uh, more likely, we're just parachuted into a situation with uh, a wide range of absorption limits, and that's what these young men are talking about: is how do we how do we de- develop our own resilience and then lead others uh, with different amounts of absorption uh, limits.
3: It's, it's a fantastic point. And part of our research into resilience uh, meant we were looking at stress as well, which is is in many ways the other side of the, the equation. And I think there's a couple of really pertinent points here, Steve, that um, the idea of stress is generally got a negative connotation in our society. But um, even though there's no, uh, there's actually no real consensus on what resilience is, all of the academic definitions refer to a requirement for stress. And there were a couple of researchers, Yerkes and Dodson, uh, who did a lot of research into the relationship between performance and stress. And they uh, demonstrate quite um, repeatedly that you need some stress to, to elevate performance, um, but it only goes up to an optimal level. So they, they talk about this inverted U curve. Understressed organisms in physical or psychological sense do not thrive they actually perish so we need some stress to push us but in much the same way as your absorption limits most of us have a threshold there's that top of the inverted u that represents the peak optimal performance and if we push the stress too far we start going over the other side now the interesting thing about that is twofold one to your point steve everyone's got a different peak of their inverted U of their Yerkes-Dodson curve. And so we need to recognize that as leaders that what might be you know, cruising just under, under red line for you might be absolutely flooring it for someone else. And the other thing is that we can get better at stress. This is a modifiable thing. And the whole concept of resilience is based on this controlled application and overcoming stressors. Um, for all us helicopter parents out there and I, unfortunately include myself in that category. Um, I think I'm overly protective of of my kids. Um, I don't think I'm doing them any favours by uh, not allowing them to experience some of those stressors and to develop that resilience. And so it is about, I think your point's a great one, Steve, it's about understanding that everyone's got that different set point, that different optimal point of stress and performance, and uh, accommodating for that but also recognising that a little bit of stress and even tipping over that, that set point every now and then
1: in a controlled fashion is actually a prerequisite for the development of resilience. Mm. We've actually discovered in our crisis management work that many corporates aren't good at this. They'll talk about how we do teamwork under stress. How do we confront a crisis and, and come through it? But they won't ever immerse themselves in a, in a high fidelity exercise or simulation. And we love the model, explain, demonstrate, imitate, practice. The most value you will derive from anything is when you practice it. And we create these simulated environments to put corporate teams 175 times a year on average through this pressure that they don't realise in business as usual. They might think that it's stressful, but when you impose something as an external facilitator on a team that's the way you start to see stress inoculation and also that's the way you can diagnose your own physiological response to stress to understand how do I now regulate that and when I look around the room who else is performing well or who else isn't and Ben talked about that optimum stress band. through stress inoculation we can stretch that quadrant to make it broader so we're ready Um, more improved to confront the stressor that we never thought was possible. It relates a bit back to that adaptation layer. Through stress inoculation, we're preparing ourselves to adapt to the thing that we could never previously conceive or perceive.
3: And this is the really cool thing, just to footnote uh, Tim's great point. This idea of resilience is transferable. And that's the, the point about the adaptation layer Uh, Angela Duckworth, who's done a ton of research into grit, which we view as a a sub-component of our model. Uh, Grit is a a component of the personality trait of conscientiousness. But um, her research has demonstrated that grit is transferable. So that the people who are more likely to stick with, she did surveys into the US Military Academy at West Point, you know, to go through that or tough job interviews or university degrees in a longitudinal sense, they're also more likely to stick through marriages and tough situations at work and these different kind of uh, non-domain specific stressors. So if we can improve our resilience in the known and knowable then we have a much better chance of dealing with a novel challenge, what we like to call the the zombie apocalypse. If we can get a good, strong, resilient shield, then we've got a better chance against the zombies.
2: Uh, Drew has uh, typed in here that realistic training maximizes stress without maximizing risk.
1: We say it all the time, Drew, no one's going to get hurt in this simulation. You're probably not even going to sweat too much and you won't definitely won't be bleeding if we get it right. So yeah. Why wouldn't you do it?
5: You know, military training, you know, from the eight late eighties, there was such a risk averse culture in training environments tied to too much safe, you know, risk, worry about safety. And of, of course, um, it instantly changes after 9-11 um, and technology and munitions and a bunch of different options came mm. available to us um, because it was how do you maximize the the turnaround of people in this, you know, the, the 12 month on 12 month off rotations, getting people ready for combat um, and um, leaders never w- stopped worrying about risk and, and safety, but Um, We didn't have the bureaucracies above us that were demanding that you had safety danger zones that were six miles wide. I mean, it's amazing how much it trends, trends, you know, it it changed over time. I'm alarmed that when I talk to current commanders, the amount of safety risks that that they're going now, it's just the we're back in the 80s when Mm -hmm. it comes to they can't do so many things. Um, because we're not in this cycle of preparing people for um, the, the most realistic, unfortunately, the two-way r- rifle ranges. There's no there's no risk aversion there. Uh, so it's fascinating how we I don't know how we can we we, we can fix this um, without um, recognizing that that stress um, has to be trained. Uh, You don't get to Mm. see a team operate until you have able to stress it out a little bit uh, without maximizing that risk that we talk about.
3: I I think the other thing, and this is something that our SAS regiment got better at. So we certainly progressed into these ideas of uh, what we call reality based training. So much more uh, sort of job spec type training. Uh, And the other thing that we really got better at is um, maximising the benefit of drawing those lessons out of that training. And so we would, um, uh, I think back in the day, and uh, there's a guy called Preston Klein who uh, runs Mission Critical Teams Institute out of the Wharton School uh, in Philly. Uh, But he's coined this phrase that the old debrief technique used to be, you suck, suck less. know and it was that kind of pressure based sort of training that that people were just under this pressure cooker until either they passed the course or they they bombed out and it really wasn't effective and so in line with improving the techniques so so taking that extra bit of risk and increasing the reality of the training it was also improving the debrief techniques so really critically looking in a socratic method you know a a back and forth dialogue uh, between the instructor and the students about what happened What did we do right? And congratulating ourselves, acknowledging things that went right and even learning from the happy accidents that sometimes come after uh, sort of unexpected successes on the the battlefield or otherwise. But then looking at the what went wrong, not as a, a... Sort of, um, you know, opportunity to ball someone out or to to chest poke or to to sort of get critical, but more as an opportunity to continuously improve as an organisation as individuals. So I think in addition to the, the style of training, the style of debriefing is also critically important, and this is something clearly that's transferable into the business world as well. I love the amazing you the difference.
5: Cindy. It's amazing the different. Uh, some of the best after-action reviews. That I've ever seen were in combat because mm-hmm. after events um, there was so because m- everybody was well everybody had very vested interests in getting <laughs> better all the time and it was fa- it's fascinating how the quality of after action reviews improved in combat it comes back to the word
1: consequence you've got so much more to lose you're going to take it more seriously and on the word consequence I love that you mentioned simunition I mean. Back in the day, when we were looking at opposed training, you might have to do a dry practice where you didn't fire anything. Uh, Then maybe you had a blank practice where you'd fire rounds, but there was no projectile. And then enter this thing called simunition. And I think in terms of just your understanding of stress and consequence, there was nothing like being shot in the backside with a paintball round at lower velocity. Now you get it, I don't want to be shot, mm-hmm. full stop. And certainly not even with a paintball round. In fact, funny, funny earth story, we had Prince Harry visit us well, in 2003, mm-hmm. um, and we took him down to the room floor combat range, uh, colloquially called the, the Kill House, and put him into an opposed scenario where we use munition. I don't know how many SAS operators were trying to shoot Prince Harry in the backside, but he came he came up wide-eyed to the officers' club afterwards, and I think he had welts from neck to, neck to ankles. It was hilarious, <laughs> but wide-eyed. You know, he, he'd been through this um, stressful event for him. He'd realised that the consequence of not being in the right position in that room floor combat range was pain and it elicited learnings
2: one of the areas i'm fascinated by is around this idea that growth comes from discomfort Mm -hmm. and one of the stories that that really resonated with me from the book was this raid of this north korean ship at sea where no amount of preparation told you what was going to be on that ship but you still develop the resilience and the grit to force yourself into an uncomfortable situation. How much have you got, maybe tell everybody a little bit about that story. And then what, what are your guys studies on the power of discomfort and how we coach ourselves to get
1: uncomfortable? That was a great lesson in complexity and stress. Uh, Ben and I were both in the SAS squadron together. I was a squadron commander. Ben was my water troop commander. And it was Easter 2003, this North Korean drug vessel called the merchant vessel Ponsu had transited down the west coast of Australia undetected. And in one of our surf beaches, some of the biggest surf in Australia had tried to put 150 kilograms of drugs ashore and in the process of doing that a dead body had washed up on the beach wrapped in kelp Um, we were given the job to go on board and um, seize the vessel it was outside the capacity of law enforcement agencies in australia and we came up with this mad plan the weather was horrendous and so we didn't really want to put to sea So we came up with a concept for a helicopter assault force using Army Black Hawk helicopters that your listeners would be familiar with. Um, And when we presented that plan to the two-star general, the special operations commander, he said, I don't like your plan. And so we had to adjust. Ben and I literally wrote the plan based on pretty much zero intelligence. We started writing the plan in the back of an in-flight magazine um, as we flew via Qantas. We hadn't expected ever to fly by Qantas. We thought we'd wait for Air Force to pick us up, but the Prime Minister at the time had other ideas. He wanted that vessel boarded and seized now to send a very clear message on transnational terrorism, crime, drug movements. For those that know North Korea, about 12% of GDP is through illicit material movement, and often it's sponsored by North Korean Special Forces. So enter plan B. We had to put to sea on on a frigate. We only had about one third of the force that we wanted. We didn't have some boarding equipment because it wouldn't fit into the hold of the Qantas aircraft. And on board that frigate, it had one embarked helicopter, not the six that we really wanted. And it wasn't a Blackhawk army helicopter. It was a Seahawk navy helicopter, which are great for hunting submarines, but not good as a troop assault vessel. The other problem we had on board the Navy frigate is they had two rigid hull inflatable boats, which were similar to the ones we had in the SAS and used very frequently, but with a couple of key key problems. Ours were petrol, they had larger engines, and therefore in the bigger sea state, it was Sea State 6 over that weekend, we'd get higher performance from our SAS boats. The Navy boats were diesel and they had smaller engines and didn't perform as well. And so we entered into this Plan B with an incredible amount of reticence. We got approval from the Prime Minister to board and seize the vessel after running it down for about 24 hours. But a lot of our team had been incredibly seasick because of the sea state. We had all of these things working against us. We didn't have our helicopters. We didn't have our boats. Plan A was rejected. Plan B was pretty mediocre. And then before we launched right at the 11th hour when the Prime Minister gave us that authorization, we got a couple of pieces of additional intelligence. The first was the last time anyone had tried to do this, it was the Japanese Coast Guard trying to board a North Korean drug vessel, and it had embarked special forces on board who had fired back at the Japanese Coast Guard with a 50 calibre machine gun. And the second piece of intelligence was there was a complex antenna array at the back of the superstructure of the Ponsu that nearly guaranteed us that North Korean Special Forces would be on board. And so we enacted our plan. Remember that boat assault force with underpowered boats? We thought they don't have the boarding equipment. They're not going to get on board. And so our primary areas of responsibility went to the assault teams coming out of the helicopter. It was one fast roping point. It had no helicopter sniping facilities, which the Black Hawk would have afforded us. And we were crammed in the back of that helicopter. There was one seat for the helicopter sniper. It was a milk crate. The fast rope came off the winch point, which wasn't rated to have multiple people on it. And if it failed, then we would lose the use of not just the helicopter, but also anyone that fell from the fast rope. Now, what actually happened is the helicopter hovered over the Ponsu which had two huge cargo derricks that were swinging wildly. And the helicopter pilot took much more time than we thought he would to get into a safe location to drop the fast rope. Conversely, the boat assault force teams got onto um, the deck much quicker than we ever thought. We didn't think they'd get there at all. And a junior team commander looked up at this helicopter struggling to find a position safely to hover and drop the fast rope and they changed that plan B completely. They had lower priority areas. They knew that we had to take the primary areas of responsibility. So without making a radio call or asking permission, they changed the whole tactical plan. A junior team leader did that and everyone else just followed suit. Now the whole mission was over in minutes. Um, As it transpires, there were North Korean special forces on board, but fortunately for us, When they put the drugs ashore at lawn the dead body that was wrapped in kelp wrapped in seaweed had been one of their operators and he had a buddy that had also washed up on the beach and was hypothermic later got arrested there were two more on the Pongsu, but we figure that when they saw the frigate and the helicopters and guys in black they decided let's give it away and to the point on um the environmental stressors and good intelligence that complex antenna array at the back of the superstructure that nearly guaranteed North Korean Special Forces were on board was a washing line, complete with the captain's underwear pinned to it. You know, So all of these things worked against us. Didn't have our preferred plan. Even the plan we ran with got modified by a junior team leader. We were, the environment was against us. The sea state didn't have the helicopters, the boats, the boarding equipment, nor did we have the total amount of people that we thought was necessary to board and seize that 106-metre vessel. But the job got done because of the adaptation layer. we built incredible capability in those those team members, both individually and collectively. And when we confronted this unknown called the Pongsu, people were just able to adapt based on the strength of the other resilient shield layers.
3: The other footnote, we're speaking a bit and seeing a few questions on this idea about shared suck and pain and struggle (laughs) and these sorts of things. A couple of things I just want to flag on that. One is that shared hardship for millennia, I would argue since humans have existed, has been a really strong bonding mechanism. And we've seen all the way back in every single tribal society, there is some kind of initiation sort of ceremony that you see. Um, This has got a very negative context now. People tend to think about frat house hazing and these sorts of things. But some kind of rite of passage uh, for, for people into a group can be an incredibly powerful thing to bond that group together. And I think it's no secret that special operations selection courses, while they do have a definite mechanism in terms of screening capabilities and qualitative sort of aspects, They are also a tribal initiation mechanism. Everyone in that organisation has done that um, uh, sort of rite of passage and they have that common ground in much the same way that every single doctor has done a GAMSAT or every single lawyer has done their SATs. Those kind of things are actually really important bonding mechanisms. And I'd encourage people in their business context to look for where these exist. Mm. If you've all been in the metaphorical trenches together working towards a tough deadline, or you've all been embracing the suck of COVID and working from home, recognize and celebrate that as a bonding um, activity because that is shared hardship in just the same way that a selection course is. The caveat to this, of course, is when it becomes exclusionary when it becomes about defining your group at the expense of an out group, that's when it can get really toxic. And that's where I think we see the frat house things and some of the the sort of exclusionary and elitist aspects of this kind of characteristic coming to the fore. But we can use it in a positive sense. The second thing on suck and pain and hardship, that's actually the good stuff. When we look at happiness, when we look at what the Greeks called eudaimonia, this idea of thriving and living a good life, it does not exist without some kind of hardship. All of the really good stuff is at the end of overcoming some kind of struggle, some kind of hardship. And so if we can define our happiness, if we can choose our suck and define our happiness and recognize that this hardship is actually an integral component of it, then we're much more likely to get a sustained uh, and, and pure sense of happiness if we're just looking at the kind of uh, the bling, the fruits of the labor, the car, the, the beachside house, and that sort of thing, if we're associating that with happiness, um, then we're, we're much more likely to have a, a hollow form and, and keep constantly chasing this.
2: You know, there's something fascinating that jumped out at me as you told that story. And I, and I think the word that comes to mind is, is humility an autocratic leader in a siloed organization will tend to tell people just do your job and you don't need to know everything. Your ability to, for everybody to adapt in that situation to some degree sounds like it it revolves around communication and humility and that as leaders, you're able to share the vision with everyone so people knew what to adapt to. You know, how much have you found that humility component to be essential to leadership?
1: It's, it's probably entwined in that dividend of trust that you have to empower juniors, your followers, those team members to do things. And the way that we would explain um, that, coming back to the triangle model, is the leader has to give a clear vision, a purpose, an intent, um, this sort of centralised concept that then we decentralise the execution of And in only doing that, do you build high performance. If you looked at high performance team models, they see decentralized execution, but where those subordinate people or teams recognize the overarching purpose or priority or intent, um, that's incredibly powerful. And the strength coming back to the Pong Su mission, the strength of that team was that everyone knew the way that we had to seize that vessel. And it didn't matter who got to uh, got onto the deck first. If the helicopter was blown out of the air and the boats were there, the next people to come in would have applied exactly the same initiative. Why? Because we encourage that decentralised execution to the point on humility. If you are participative in the way that you interact with your subordinates, of course, implicit in that is a component of humility.
3: The other thing that i see a lot of people getting mixed up with and i reckon if i'm honest i spent about 15 years as an army officer getting mixed up with this idea that humility and vulnerability do not equal weakness i think there can be a tendency as a leader to think if we're being vulnerable that that we're demonstrating weakness um, but of course that's that's folly and and anyone who's worked with a leader who tries to pretend they've got all the answers or tries to pretend they've got everything under control. It's it's inauthentic. It's it's absolutely fake, and it's it's very transparent. And so, I think the ideas of humility, the ideas of vulnerability, are actually leadership superpowers. Um, we do need at times to recognise when we need to to be uh, demonstrating what I call a theatre of leadership. We need to be putting on that inspirational, that confidence, that reassurance, even if we're internally uh, a little worried, but. For the vast majority of times, being able to be authentic, being able to be humble, and being able to be vulnerable is a much stronger leadership characteristic.
2: I think Steve's going to ask a fascinating question that I'm, I'm glad he's addressing this.
4: <laughs> well, I hate to get away from the stories. They're just great. And your, your follow-up questions, Randy, are fantastic. Uh, this is more men- mundane, but I'm, I'm wondering... If you, in your studies of resilience and working with different uh, groups of people, if there are differences between men and women in resilience, if there are differences between different generations in uh, resilience, are, are what you've been talking about uh, to this point, the mm-hmm. consistent methodology for dealing with those differences and getting the hoped-for result? Or do you deal with uh, those differences in a different way?
3: Certainly from our research, um, we have not seen any statistically significant difference between genders uh, nor between age groups. Now, one caveat to that, there is research that we've seen that suggests that people Uh, get more resilient as they get older. Um, Tim and I refer to this as the the grandpa doesn't give a shit factor that, you know, you get to a point in your life where you don't sweat the small stuff as much. Now, statistically, that tends to get negated by the fact that uh, some older demographics feel more vulnerable. You know, they're no longer working. They feel more susceptible to life and financial changes. So there's no real clear generalisation across that board. Um, What I would suggest is, and this comes back to our discussion on empathy um, uh, as a leader previously, it's probably less about these big brackets of demographics and more about understanding those individual characteristics because there is far more difference in resilience at an individual level than at a a bulk, you know, gender sort of surface demographic
1: level. Mm. We like to say resilience varies by degree, not kind. It's as relevant to my father as it is to my youngest daughter. However, the way that we train and teach it needs a different vector. We wouldn't be running stress inoculation for school kids in the same way that we're running stress inoculation, for example, for corporates. So, yeah, there's there's probably a little bit more science or art in the delivery, but the model is equally applicable.
2: There's so many things I want to ask, <laughs> trying to focus in here on, uh, on which ones to, uh, to close out with, because this is, um, so powerful. Um, there's a point in the book where you said, we hope this book changes your life and having read it and listened to it. I think if someone took this and, and tried just a, a little more, <laughs> uh, went a little mm-hmm. further and tried a little more it would change their life and transform their mindset. What's the feedback been since you released the book? Has it, what What's come back from, from folks that have read this and, and told you how it has transformed their life?
1: In a word, overwhelming. When you read that line out, I felt myself get quite emotional. And if I can just give one little bit of feedback, we got a note from a guy who's in psychiatric care who absolutely has been struggling physically and mentally, to get them out of this psychiatric institution. Someone introduced our book to him and he penned us a note saying, wow, I can now see light on how I can get out of here. I can understand why I feel the way I do. I don't feel guilty about it. And I recognize that I can make meaningful changes in my resilience that ultimately will see me get mentally and physically better. I think that punctuates the point. We're not just seeing elite teams picking up the book and searching for that extra 1% of performance, but yes, they are. We aren't just seeing corporates trying to deal with the everyday stress of being a trader, but we spoke yesterday to 50 traders. But we're seeing people who are chronically unwell physically and mentally, and this handbook for resilience, which, oh, by the way, isn't all of our ideas. We've just aggregated evidence-based um, information inside the book has become nearly a bit of a lighthouse for them. They can see how they can get to safety. And oh, it's been heartwarming the amount of feedback we've had both on our social media platforms directly and also um, through our email um, we talked about the survey, and we should explain how you get to the survey. It's at our website, www.resilientshield.com. All feedback for anyone that's read the book, who loves it, hates it, or any point in between, you can get us at, build at resilientshield.com. And in the US, you can buy the ebook and the audio book online. Hard copies, you can also order from that same website, resilientshield.com. And if you let us know who you love love us to make it out to your sign um, and make an inscription and send it across to you. But the feedback's been unbelievable.
6: Randy,
3: I I just also want to punctuate it with the fact that we hope that it came across this way, but we didn't write this book as experts or teachers. We we wrote it as students. In many ways, the book is about us um, as humans trying to get our heads around this idea of resilience and really trying to... Uh, work out what's going to improve the, the, that characteristic for us uh, and and universally. And so in many ways, uh, the, the feedback has been incredible. It's awesome that it, it's resonated, but it's also made our lives so much better. You know, the, the same sort of practices and principles um, are stuff that we employ daily. It's given us a lexicon uh, between ourselves and with our families to talk about these things. And we're delighted that that has resonated um, more widely as, as collectively, we all try and figure out, you know, what it is we're doing on this planet and, and how we can make the most of it for the for us and, and for the people we love. Are you still trying to work that out?
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and in fact, if anyone's <laughs> got the answer to that, I'm all ears.
2: We're
4: all trying to muddle our way through.
2: Well, guys, it's uh, it was awesome to spend time with you, and and I think you're going to achieve your goal that your book is going to change people's lives. I know it had a dramatic impact on mine, um, just reading it and listening to it and experiencing it. And uh, Mike does so much work in this area; I couldn't wait to get it to him and and talk about how much uh, how many parallels there were between the work he's doing and what you guys do, and. I think there's opportunities, as Mike said, to collaborate and figure out, you know, all the different ways to take the work you've done and your experiences and have a positive impact on folks. So I really appreciate you coming and spending time with us. It was great.
3: No, thank you, thanks, Randy. Randy. You guys Not are everyone. doing
2: a really inspiring work and uh, and keep it up. Excellent. Thanks, thank
3: Randy.
2: you. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining. I, I enjoyed it. It was a great night together. Bye everyone.